From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about Elizabeth Warren, the fierce fighter against Donald Trump and everything he stands for. Margaret Talbot of The New Yorker will comment. And we ask the question, whether Bernie wins or loses, how can we keep the Bernie movement alive? Don Guttenplan of The Nation has a report on organizing efforts underway right now. First up today, the California primary is next Tuesday. Hillary Clinton's supporters say the contest for the nomination is over. She has an insurmountable lead, but nobody seems to have told Bernie Sanders. For a report on Bernie's California campaign, we turn to Nikki Wolf. He's a reporter for Guardian U.S. based in San Francisco. Nikki Wolf, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, we've been amazed by the punishing pace Bernie has set for himself for the last couple of weeks in California. You've been following the campaign. Remind us, please, where he has been. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's been on an extraordinary campaign uh binge out to kind of almost every city in the state. He's been in more than a dozen cities. I saw him in Oakland yesterday. He's going to Palo Alto tomorrow. Uh, He's been in Fresno. He's been in Sacramento. Sacramento, especially with uh, 20,000 people turned out to his rally. The the crowds he's been turning out were, uh, have been extraordinary the whole way through. I mean, for a, a campaign that's sort of nominally mathematically finished, it's huge, huge turnouts he's seeing. Here in Southern California, uh, he was doing two and three of these rallies a day with 10,000 and more uh, people, something no other candidate is, is doing. You've been going to several of these rallies. Do they feel like the last hurrah of a losing candidate? Absolutely not. They feel victorious in a way. I mean, it's difficult to kind of see exactly how he's going to win the nomination, but most of the people I speak to there are are very sure that they'll find a way. I I think a lot of it comes from the fact that the Sanders campaign's messaging has been focusing less on uh, the total delegate count, which includes superdelegates, and more on just the pledged delegates uh, from state by state. Um, And in the pledged delegates, he's been on a a role. He's won most of the late primaries, uh, especially the caucuses, where he does especially well, and especially primaries which allow uh, independents to vote. It it feels like if there were no superdelegates, the narrative would be that Sanders is is catching up fast with Clinton. And I think that's the, the message that his supporters are taking away. Yeah, we noticed the same thing. Last week, when Bernie was, we record in Los Angeles, and Bernie was doing rallies all over Southern California. Mm. Last week, we went to Santa Monica, where he spoke at the high school football field. There were at least 10,000 people there. That audience was mostly young, really happy, really excited. It was a beautiful evening near the beach. We didn't see any of the anger, bitterness, hostility, nastiness. Uh, that the media have have talked about. Did you see, you know, booing of Hillary, cursing of Hillary, nastiness towards Hillary at the rallies you went to? Not much, no. There was a couple of times when um, he would uh, mention that Hillary has said that he can't win and there'd be boos for that. But it was it's all very good-natured. Uh, one thing to note is that um, I spoke to people uh, at a Sacramento rally 
uh, about a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago. And a lot of people I spoke to there were very ambivalent about the prospect of voting for Hillary Clinton in the general election. So, I mean, it's, it's good natured, but I think Hillary may have a problem among these uh, young Sanders supporters when it comes to the general election, assuming she gets the nomination. Well, let's talk about California and the vote in California for another minute here. The California Democratic primary, of course, is open, which means independents can vote in the Democratic primary. If you're registered for another party, you cannot. So no Greens, no Libertarians, uh, no Donald Trump Republicans are allowed. But the independents Bernie is counting on, do we have any sense, any hard facts uh, about how successful Bernie will be on next Tuesday with the independents? Uh, it's difficult to tell. I haven't seen any polls which have managed to, with a big enough sample size, break down uh, that give anything more than a hint uh, of what might happen. But those hints that you see are that uh, among independents, especially among independents under 30, uh, Bernie wins by at least double digits and, and if not more. And in the polling that takes into account all uh, likely Democratic voters, the polling numbers have been narrowing extremely fast. So the latest one I've seen is a PPIC poll um, that puts Clinton on 46%, Sanders on 44%, which is well within the margin of error. So it, it's certainly looking like it's going to be a very tight race in California. And then there are all the new voters. The registration of new voters has been huge this year in California. The registration just closed last week. What can you tell us about the uh, new voters? Well, the Sanders campaign is claiming to have signed up one and a half million uh, new voters themselves. They claim to have uh, made two million phone calls with uh, 55,000 uh, volunteers. It's, a, it's an enormous ground game operation. Um, and if those figures hold true and if they can turn out uh, those newly registered voters on the day, uh, that's going to be a huge result for Bernie Sanders. The news that we hear today is that Hillary is canceling events in New Jersey, which votes the same day, uh, to spend more time in California and that she's rapidly scheduling extra events and planning to increase her media spending. Can you tell us anything more about Hillary's plans? I, I think Hillary has suddenly realized that she has a California problem and is worried that no matter what happens, a kind of nasty fight at the convention between her and Sanders, uh, I think she realizes is going to really cause her problems uh, in the general election. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if she didn't start campaigning pretty hard here just to try and, and stem the flow away from Bernie Sanders. I haven't seen the new events scheduled for her yet, but that wouldn't surprise me at all. We've seen reports that Bernie's media spending is, I think, double uh, Hillary's right now. On the other hand, my understanding is that the strength of the Bernie campaign is in the so-called ground game and the face-to-face -face organizing, and the TV ads historically have not been very effective in, in changing election uh, outcomes. Why do you think Bernie is spending so much of his money on TV? Well, I think something that's worth noting is that while it's true that Sanders has outspent Clinton two to one, uh, the amount both have have spent in the state on TV advertising is is vanishingly small in a market as big as California. I think Sanders has spent around one and a half million dollars. 
to Clinton's 750,000, but that's not even a, a major buy in any one of California's major uh, ad markets. So the, the double figure is, may slightly be misleading simply because both campaigns have spent, compared to previous years, kind of next to nothing. But Sanders is relying on his very powerful ground game, that vast number of volunteers. I haven't seen the numbers for how many Clinton volunteers there are in the state, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that they're considerably less, uh, considerably fewer than that. I know you talked to a, a lot of the uh, Bernie uh, volunteers uh, on the campaign trail in California the last couple of days. Tell us more about what they had to say. They believe that they're part of a movement, which is certainly not the sort of thing that you hear from uh, from Hillary Clinton volunteers. But Sanders has managed to uh, invigorate a lot of young people with the idea that sea change is possible in the American political system. And uh, a lot of people were very excited about going to the convention and putting these ideas to the test. A lot of them also really want to see Sanders face off against Trump uh, in a true battle of ideas in November. They, they see Clinton as... In, in the best case, a mere pragmatist, um, and in the worst case, part of the establishment problem uh, against which they're fighting. So they they want to push through with the movement even um, past November. They they think that that real change is possible, and they think Sanders can win. They're they're really convinced of that. I, I spoke to a whole load of people who at various rallies across the country and at uh, field offices. Uh, sorry, across the state rather than across the country, and uh, none of them would even uh, allow for the possibility that that Sanders uh, isn't going to win uh, the nomination. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, possibly wishful thinking, but a lot of hope uh, involved in this campaign. And uh, I think if Obama's campaign in 2008 showed us anything, it's that that can be a very powerful uh, mover of of people and mover of votes. So, what do you think? How do you think? How do you think Bernie will do in California next Tuesday? Uh, are his supporters right that he could win? It's worth saying first that uh, Donald Trump has, has pushed uh, me and a lot of us out of the prediction game. But, but I think he could definitely win the state. Um, I think he could win the state quite convincingly. If I had to put money on it, I would say uh, Sanders wins in California by four points. Wow. But... Uh, again, it's worth remembering that the delegates are allocated not, it's not a, a winner-take-all state, there are no winner-take-all primaries, and that even a four-point swing, even a 10-point swing, even a 15-point swing would see Clinton still, uh, with her superdelegates, get enough delegates to clinch the nomination. That's what uh, people have been meaning when they say that it's mathematically impossible for Sanders to win. And I think, but if Sanders has a symbolic victory in California, he can then go to Philadelphia and say, I've been winning all these states, you're only uh, the presumptive nominee because you have the superdelegates, and now we have a conversation about whether superdelegates, especially in states that Sanders won, um, would be under pressure to change their votes, but it could be a, a very complicated and, and possibly uh, contentious convention. I think it's a very good point that, that this, neither of the campaigns are spending anything significant on, on TV. Bernie's campaign is famous for its digital component, and of course Silicon Valley is the uh, world headquarters of digital uh, culture. What can you tell us about Bernie's digital campaign and his campaign in the Silicon Valley? Uh, I mean, Bernie's campaign uh, being 
geared much more towards younger voters and volunteers. Uh, his his cohort are very internet literate. They're very social media literate. They do a lot of their organizing on Twitter. I spoke to one volunteer in their San Diego uh, office uh, who was saying that because uh, they feel like the mainstream media, as they as they call it, has covered them unfairly and has prematurely, uh, in their view, decided that uh, Sanders is is out. They they now are recommending that volunteers go straight to Twitter for their news, straight to the the networks of volunteers um, on Twitter for their news, and sort of ignoring the. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that they lumped in CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News all together as one wow. block. Wow. Uh, and they're just saying, yeah, avoid avoid the the mainstream media and just stick to which can I think risk becoming an echo chamber. And I think that's how a lot of the um, disconnect between outsiders looking in at the campaign see it and how the campaign itself sees itself because a lot of the time they're they're just talking and seeing news from other volunteers but certainly that kind of approach allows the campaign uh, and that kind of network allows the campaign to be turning out these vast crowds everywhere. Nikki Wolf, he's a reporter for Guardian US based in San Francisco. Nikki, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Whatever happens in the California primary next week, Bernie Sanders has created a movement with immense political potential. More than 10 million people who voted for what he calls a revolution against the status quo of establishment politics and establishment money. And more than 7.5 million people have made campaign contributions, the total more than $200 million. Bernie has always said it's not just about him. It will take millions and millions of people to change American politics. So what is the future of the Bernie movement? Of course, the Democrats need Bernie and his supporters to work to defeat Donald Trump and to retake the Senate in November. We've talked a lot about that here. But what about after November, when the experts tell us it still looks like Hillary will be president. What can Bernie people do then? What should they do? For a report, we turn to Don Guttenplan. He's editor-at-large of The Nation and the award-winning author of the book American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone. He also produced the acclaimed documentary film Edward Said, The Last Interview. And his latest book is about the magazine. It's called The Nation, A Biography. The last time we talked here was at the beginning of the primary season, right after the New Hampshire primary. Now that we're close to the end, it's a pleasure to say, Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be back, John. A lot has happened since the last time we spoke. (laughs) You said it. Well, I know you've been talking with dozens of Bernie supporters, staffers, and volunteers all over the country for your new cover story in The Nation magazine on the future of Bernie's grassroots army. All, All of them agree that the Bernie campaign should be the beginning of something big and something lasting in American politics. I want to talk about some of the different groupings that you report on. Let's start with the first big thing that's going to happen on this front, the People's Summit. That's a gathering in Chicago, June 17th to 19th, a little more than two weeks. Who is organizing the People's Summit? What is their strategy? Well, the People's Summit is essentially um, 
It's the sort of People for Bernie. So that's the online vehicle through which this call has come out. And the Nurses Union, National Nurses United. The People's Summit is what you might call the movement component of Bernie's campaign. They're not going to try to hammer out any kind of unified position. They are not going to say, are we going to endorse Hillary Clinton or not? These are the people who, in a way, are furthest in their distance from the Democratic Party. Uh, they are, you know, interested in the Democratic Party, but they don't see the Democratic Party as the main vehicle for their politics going forward. I looked at their program online. Their speakers include Naomi Klein, uh, Cornell West, who now is uh, Bernie's nominee to the Platform Committee, uh, Roseanne DeMauro of National Nurses uh, United, plus uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Hawaii's representative in Congress, and uh, our friend Baskar Sunkara, the founder of Jacobin Magazine. Quite, let's call it a diverse group. It's very much a diverse group. Uh, I suppose it's a kind of counter-thrust to the thrust by some people that who are arguing that Bernie should start his own organization, you know, like Dean's Democracy for America or Obama's Obama for America, uh, you know, at a, at a wild guess you might call it Sanders for America, and, you know, corral everybody into that. And I think this is a, a, essentially a, an attempt to say, well, you know, maybe that's not the way to go. Let's see what other ways there are to go. Find out more at thepeoplesummit.org. So let's talk about uh, brand-new Congress. That is, the, I'd say, the best-known effort to keep the Bernie movement going after the election. What is a brand-new Congress? What's their strategy? It partly grows out of this thing that, that nobody really talked about very much during the primary season, which is disenchantment with, or at least disappointment with, what President Obama was able to do, to put it at its mildest. Because the, the, the idea is that, and Sanders said this a lot, he said, you know, just electing me isn't going to change things. But what people, a lot of people who were very enthusiastic in supporting uh, and get, helping to get Obama elected, then saw that he wasn't able to do things, that he was stymied by Congress. And so the theory of brand new Congress is let's elect a brand new Congress in 2018. Let's start now. Let's aggressively challenge uh, Democrats who are not progressives in primaries. So let's make sure that in every district in the country there's a progressive candidate. So the website, brandnewcongress.org, says one plan, one campaign, 535 candidates. It's what Zach Exley, who had been running the kind of volunteer uh, coordination for the distributed organizing of the Sanders campaign. Now, let me slow down and explain to listeners. Distributed organizing is essentially the way the Sanders campaign worked, and it was very different, for example, from the way the Obama campaign worked. In the Obama campaign, people would try and, and organize themselves, and then the Obama people would arrive from the campaign headquarters, and they, say, they would say, fine, we've got it from here, thank you very much, you know, go home now. Uh, with the Sanders campaign, people would organize themselves, and uh, eventually they would get a, vis a visit from an emissary, <laughs> if they were lucky, and often this emissary was Zach Exley, who would come and do what they called Ber a Bernie barnstorm, where he'd, he'd get people together for a couple of days of intense training on how to run a phone bank and how to run a get-out-the-vote effort, and then he'd go back and leave them to it. 
And so he, after um, Sanders lost New York, when it became mathematically extremely, extremely unlikely that he was going to be the nominee, Zach left to do this brand new Congress. I also think it's very important to focus on the 2018 midterms because, of course, historically, the Republicans have always dominated the midterm voting, and that's where Obama uh, really was defeated. That's where LBJ was really uh, defeated. To emphasize a progressive Congress in the 2018 midterms is extremely important. I think it's important. I think it's ambitious. And there are two things that led me to take it more seriously than I otherwise might, because, you know, I'm a I'm a believer in slow, hard, on-the-ground organizing, um, and I remain somewhat skeptical about what you can accomplish in social media organizing, and this is essentially a social media-based initiative, at least initially. But in a sense, in states where the, where the Democratic Party is in corporate hands, progressives who are fed up with trying to wrest it from corporate hands on a, on a, you know, just in that state, are leaping at the chance to have colleagues across the country who are trying the same thing at the same time to support each other, raise money together, and, you know, help each other out. And the other thing uh, is that I have been in too many states and met too many really talented organizers who've done incredible work. So, you know, I, I am inclined to take it seriously for that reason. You talked about the slow, hard, on-the-ground work of organizing. That takes us to the Working Families Party, another model of what the Bernie movement could become. Working Families Party's had some great success in New York. It's separate from the Democratic Party, seeks to wrest power from the hands of the party establishment. How could this work on a bigger scale? Well, the Working Families Party is already in something like uh, seven or eight states. It started in New York, and it started quite a long time ago because of a quirk in the New York election laws. But New York is a special case. In the other states where, where the Working Families Party are active, what they essentially are are a progressive caucus within the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think that is their aim. And, for example, many of the people I met in Nevada, in, in Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is, who worked on the Sanders campaign, are now part of this pilot to start a working families party in Nevada. Now, in Nevada, they're taking a slightly different approach. They're trying to build a big member base. That's something that the working families party hasn't done so much in the past because they've had a fairly small member base but a big, a big vote turnout, and they've been funded largely by labor unions. However, that's limited what they've been able to do and candidates they've been able to endorse. So, in part, this is an experiment to see if they can get a mass base. Now, the, the, the risk is that if you can't get a mass base, you know, that exposes the, your lack of appeal. And it's a slow process. On the other hand, it's very much connected to people who are organizers in the community. And uh, it's not just in Nevada. For example, when I went through Pennsylvania, I went into the Sanders office in Lancaster and in Reading. And in each of those towns, I would talk to the people who were in the office, and I'd say, well, you know, are you connected with the national campaign? No. Has anybody from the national campaign been here yet? No. This was a month before the vote in Pennsylvania. I said, so, you know, who are you? And they said, well, we're the Working Families Party, and we're <laughs> this is Working for Bernie is our project that we're doing now. Um, so, you know, th these are people who are very 
good at the kind of slow, patient work of organizing, and it's what you could call an inside-outside strategy. It's inside the Democratic Party. It's not trying to build a third party to run candidates on a third party line, but it is outside in that it is an outside base. It has its own base and its own integrity and its own discipline. Uh, and the, I suppose the idea is to use that to wield power within the Democratic Party and push the Democratic Party in the areas where the Working Families Party is active to become a truly progressive party. One of the things I like best about uh, the Working Families Party, especially in New York, is uh, they their long-term perspective includes developing candidates to run for school boards, for city council, for state legislature, for zoning boards, for park boards, to create the pipeline of good candidates that will be able to run for office as progressives in four years, eight years, 12 years. That's the kind of slow, hard, on-the-ground organizing that they No, I, I, I agree. And in, in, a, in a sense, it's the mirror image of Brand New Congress, because Brand New Congress says, let's, let's identify 538 candidates and run them for Congress. WFP says, let's identify thousands of candidates and start at the bottom and, you know, work our way up through the Democratic Party by running people. And it, it says, let's take the people who've turned out for the Sanders campaign. You know, these people are all, by definition, self-identified progressives. And let's get them to run. One more group we haven't talked about, the Occupy Democrats. Well, those are the people who basically think we've already, we can already take over the Democratic Party and that all we have to do is declare ourselves and the party will fall into our hands. I mean, I'm, sure. I'm, caricatur I'm caricaturing them slightly, but it's true that in some states and in some parts of the country, progressives are already the majority in their local parties, and they do just have to sort of hold up their hands and say, we're here and we're the party. And that's the Occupy Democrats thread. The big revelation of the Sanders campaign for me, is not that you can run a national campaign without relying on corporate dollars, although I, I, I think that's a big deal. It has revealed how strong the left actually is in America. You know, we, we were afraid to do anything. We were afraid to look at ourselves for fear that what we would see in the mirror would be a 90-pound weakling. Well, it turns out the left in America is not a 90-pound weakling. And so the question is, what do you do with all that strength, that surprising strength that's been revealed in the Sanders campaign? Don Guttenplan, his report, The Future of Bernie Sanders' Grassroots Army, is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Thank you, Don. A pleasure. Elizabeth Warren has electrified all of us with her attacks on Donald Trump. She may be the most effective opponent Trump has in the Democratic Party. For comment, we turn to Margaret Talbot. She's been a New Yorker staff writer since 2003. Before that, she wrote for the New York Times Magazine. Before that, she was an editor of the New Republic, and she was also one of the founding editors of the late lamented Lingua Franca. Margaret Talbot, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Well, let's start with Elizabeth Warren's Twitter war with Trump several weeks ago. Trump is famous, of course, for those middle-of-the-night tweets that are outrageous and somehow always seem to make the news. But Elizabeth Warren started her own uh, Twitter war with Trump right after the Indiana primary. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, she um, actually seems to be having quite a lot of fun doing it. She's just kind of taking him on and um, saying, you know, for a guy with the, quote, best words, as he said of himself, you know, you, you're coming up with pretty lame nicknames, weak. And uh, she had one tweet that was just very blunt that said, your policies are dangerous, your words are reckless, your record is embarrassing, and your free ride is over. There's another one, one of my favorites. There's more enthusiasm for Donald Trump among leaders of the KKK than leaders of the political party he now controls. Yeah, that was great. That was one of the opening salvos of of, of this war of hers. Trump called her Pocahontas. Uh, I just want to pause on that for a minute because the issue of her claims of Native American heritage had been part of—that's an old story that goes back to her campaign for the Senate in Massachusetts. She was quite open at that point in saying her mother's family always talked about their Native American heritage when she was growing up in, in Oklahoma. Is this going to be at all effective this year on in Trump's hands, do you think? It- yeah, it didn't work in Massachusetts against um, Scott Brown. I mean, she, yeah, it seems to have been an honest mistake. It seems to have been something that was talked about, as you say, in her family. She was from Oklahoma, where a lot of people, of course, do have um, some Native American heritage. But, you know, I guess she did fill out, believing this to be true, she did fill out forms when she was applying for various of her um, posts at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard. Harvard Law Schools. Um, and then when uh, there didn't seem to be really any corroboration for this, or, or it may be that, you know, she's some tiny percentage, has some tiny percentage of Native American lineage, you know, she sort of said that. And yeah, then it, 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 it kind of disappeared from the campaign. People didn't find it to be that worrying a scandal. So, um, you know, even though Trump has been weirdly effective with some of his, you know, <laughs> Some of his his uh, nicknames for people, um, you know, little Marco and the like. I, I don't really think uh, I don't think this one is is going to be particularly effective. Um, people don't really get what he's talking about. You said in passing she seems to be having fun with this. That's kind of an unusual response to being attacked by Trump. What what's <laughs> happening here? Yeah, I, you know, and I think that's kind of why she is attracting this sort of grateful attention from, from Democrats, too, because she's, she's a scrappy type of person. She seems to enjoy debates. She seems to enjoy arguments. She doesn't seem sort of worn down by them as, as, I mean, a lot of us, I think, would be, and a lot of people have been by Trump. I mean, she has an appetite for this. She's, and she's been on Colbert and had fun, seemed, seem to be having fun there, dissing Trump. So I don't know. She has this energy about it and brio that's kind of, at this moment in the campaign, quite refreshing, I think. And she gave that memorable speech last week. It was not a fun speech. This was after we learned that Trump had said that during the uh, housing crisis of after the 2008, that he bought foreclosed homes and made a lot of money that way. And this was an example of his business genius. Elizabeth Warren was speaking at the Center for Popular Democracy. It's an economic justice organization. Uh, where she told the story of a Nevada family whose home had been foreclosed at the height of that 2008 economic crisis. Uh, Let's listen to what Elizabeth Warren said there. Just yesterday, it came out that Donald Trump had said back in 2007, that is the year before the Estradas lost their home, that he was, quote, excited 
for the real estate market to crash because, quote, I've always made more money in bad markets than good. That's right. The rest of us were horrified by what happened during the 2008 financial crisis, by what happened to millions of families like Mr. Estrada's that were forced out of their homes. But Donald Trump was drooling over the idea of a housing meltdown because it meant he could buy up more property on the cheap. What kind of a man does that? What kind of a man roots for people to get thrown out of their house? What kind of pan roots for people to get thrown out of their jobs, to root for people to lose their pensions, to root for two little girls in Clark County, Nevada, to end up living out of a van? What kind of a man does that? I'll tell you exactly what kind of a man does that. It is a man who cares about no one but himself. A small... a small, insecure money grubber who doesn't care who gets hurt so long as he makes a profit off it. What, what kind of a man does that? A man who will never be President of the United States. Wow, that's, uh, that's strong stuff. Uh, do you think... Do you think Hillary could succeed giving a speech like that? No, <laughs> because uh, for one thing, it, there are too many, obviously, concerns about her own connection to Wall Street um, and big donors that, you know, Bernie Sanders and others have drawn so much uh, attention to and that people have been you know, as part of the reason that people feel alienated from her, many people, uh, many progressives, um, as a candidate. And so I don't think she quite has the um, ground to stand on in that kind of, um, you know, moral high dudgeon about um, inequality and, and, and financial corruption. And I also think it's just not her style, right? I mean, even when she talks about being a fighter, somehow, you know, she still comes across more strongly as, you know, a policy wonk than a than a kind of, you know, down and dirty fighter for progressive causes in the way that, you know, that Elizabeth Warren seems to be now. I mean, I'm saying both down and dirty and high moral dudgeon, but some some combination of those two that she seems to be able to pull off um, and that, you know, Bernie Sanders seems seems to be able to project. Um, and Hillary has, has trouble for substantive and, and stylistic reasons doing, I think. Some people wish Hillary would pick Elizabeth Warren as her running mate. Of course, their hope would be to bring the maximum number of Bernie voters back into the Hillary camp for November. What can you tell us about that? Do you think that could be a good idea? Well, it's funny because I think even, you know, a couple of months ago, it, it, it would have looked so much like not the way you choose a vice president, you know, no demographic balance to women of roughly the same age, to white women of roughly the same age. <laughs> you would never have thought that was, a, that was a, a classic kind of, you know, strengthening the ticket choice. But, you know, this has been such, obviously, a crazy campaign in every way, and now we're looking at Trump, and we're looking at these national polls where Hillary and Trump are quite close, um, and um, actually, you know, Sanders is doing better uh, in a hypothetical matchup with Trump, um, and Elizabeth Warren does seem to um, 
be able to animate the progressive wing of the party that has um, been so enthusiastic about Bernie. And also, there's something to me about, and Michelle Goldberg made this um, argument also in, in Slate, there's something about, um, you know, having these two women that almost seems like something that would just rattle Trump to his core, just kind of put him on, you know, just break down the mechanism or something. Like he just, two, to these two older women, like his, his uh, you know, his least favorite demographic, um, women his own age, I think that he would just, I don't know, I don't, I, it, it could cause, you know, it could cause him to go on the fritz in some major way. Um, so I don't know, that's just my little, my little fantasy, but I, I think there might be something to that. Um, my plan, I have to tell you, yes, my, your plan, plan. my plan yeah. is that the, the pollsters are right that Hillary is still the most likely person to be our next president. My plan is the Democrats will also retake the Senate, and we need Elizabeth Warren in the Senate alongside Bernie to, uh, to push uh, Hillary to be the best president she can. Well, that's true, and I, I think that's a solid plan. And one argument against picking thank you, Warren. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, one argument against Warren is that, yeah, is that she then, her replacement would be appointed by the now Republican governor of uh, Massachusetts. So, you know, yeah. In your piece for the New Yorker about Elizabeth Warren, you quote her commencement address at Bridgewater State University. It was pretty great. Can you just remind us what she said there? She said, you know, she when she was uh, graduating, because of course she she comes from um, a pretty working class background and um, had a kid when she was 19 and um, had to work during high school to help support her family and everything. So she says, you know, on her something on, you know, like on her commencement day, she could never have imagined that, you know, she would be up here giving a speech like this, and she could never have imagined that she would be in this Twitter war with, you know, Donald Trump of all people. And she said, but here I am, living the life. Margaret Talbot, she wrote about Elizabeth Warren for The New Yorker. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>